Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to my favourite time of the week. And I'm very delighted to have Major General Chip Chapman. And Chip had a very successful career, that amazing combination of being airborne forces as a power officer, but also being bright and at the sort of top end of his generation. And um, after his time in the army, he's now an advisor on everything from cyber to strategy, sought after on TV shows and um, today programmes about his views. So Chip, great having you here. Good to be here, Jonathan. Um, tell us a bit about, in a, in a nutshell, about your, your career and the things you've packed in in your life thus far. Well, I did 33 years in the military and it really went from a position of conscious incompetence to one where I was subconsciously competent. But it was a struggle at the beginning because although I was deemed to be quite clever and I was the only one in my generation to get a first class honours degree in those days for example I wasn't actually very well trained to begin with in the good old days the parachute regiment didn't send officers to the platoon commanders division really? until they converted to a regular commission or extended their their careers yeah. so I did a very very short course at Sanders it was only 17 weeks at the time it was a thing called POSIT 9 because yeah university graduates knew how to strip and assemble an SLR and put on their uh, putties and all those sorts of things. So we were deemed to be military competent to a, to a certain degree without having the tactical and intellectual tools to provide us what we really needed at the, uh, at the starts of our careers. And in a sense, my career was saved by going to war because the thing that Sandhurst had really taught me was how to do platoon attacks I could do that fairly well in the Falkland Island campaign. Then I became ruthlessly professional and the Damascene moment where that occurred was in my third tour really when I was an instructor at the platoon commanders division. I was taking over from an officer and I was sitting at the back for two weeks on a TA course, a reserve course, and I thought I don't understand 80% of what this guy's talking about. And I ruthlessly went away and read every British Army pamphlet Right. And that was the moment when I became professional, truly professional. And from that moment on, I then took that forward. And absolutely to this day, despite my advanced age, still believe in continuous professional development in whatever Good. sphere one's doing. Good. And, and as well as the things you learned on, on the way, you learned from people. And, and who would you look back on, or even who you work with now and still there now, as a couple of inspiring leaders and what qualities do you admire about them? Well there are two really stand out for me. One is John Crossland who was my uh, company commander in the Falklands and John Crossland was really... You were in the Falklands really? Yeah I was uh, in his company B Company 2 Power and he stood out for really being a charismatic leader and he was a charismatic leader in the sense of it was we could do anything not I can do anything and he inspired the organisation he led both with vertical cohesion between leader and led and horizontal cohesion between all the blokes at the bottom of the food chain. Mm. And if you could really almost see, see this as a religious experience, it was the point where he sanctified us with 
uh, vertical cohesion and with horizontal cohesion. That's great. And who else inspired you? The second one was really at the top of my career where John Croston, of course, was direct leadership at the lowest level. The one who really inspired me near the end of my career was Jim Mattis, strategic oh, yeah. leadership, mm -hmm. who commanded at the time US Central Command and went on, of course, to be the SecDef in the USA. And he also was a very charismatic leader, but you could also see that he was the product of continuous professional development in his own sphere. He'd read over a thousand books. He could quote things from most of these books. And he was just an inspiring guy who could pithily tell you bon mots, which would lead you to absolute understanding. And a number of them have, have stood with me, of which the most illuminating, in a sense, is his, his line about, if you have good people and bad process, bad process wins nine times out of 10. And for me, that is the essence of the difference between management and leadership. Mm. Because if you haven't got those good processes, which are really managerial things, you can't build on the leadership, which should yeah. encircle all that. Yeah, have you stayed in touch with Jim Mattis? I do occasionally, uh, but of course he's very elevated now <laughs> and he's a very busy man. Yeah, no, very interesting. And then what about some of the, the tips that you'd give to people about leadership? You know, we've got, got a, a bit of time. Uh, we'll say that for the very end, but I'd like to hear a, a personal story about, because, you know, leaders keeping in touch with being grounded and, and who they are, you know, your, your days in the Fultons in the war and things like that, you had to be really grounded. And uh, seeing that picture of you back in those days when you were, uh, you know, under fire and all the time the, the aircraft were coming over from the Argentinians. Um, we, we all make mistakes. And I, I continue to make loads of them, but what would you see as a sort of personal mistake you made in not leading so well, but then, then it shaped you because you learned from it to become a better leader? What would you choose? Well, I think there are two examples. And one, of course, is directly from the Falklands. Uh, because if I made a mistake in the Falklands, it was not knowing when to disobey an order. And of course, you really do need in any business or in the military to build in a challenge function. So I was pinned down on the gorse line by Bocker House and was told to withdraw by my company commander, who I love to death, charismatic leader, but he did not have situational awareness of the ground. I responded to that in the way I should have, or at that time, and exposed myself and my organisation to enemy fire, which uh, we took casualties. What I should have said to him was that I was in a good position I could still engage the enemy. Momentum is continuous pressure, either in business, on your competitors, or in the battlefield. And I didn't. And really what I learned from that is there is a time to disobey orders. You need to build in a challenge function. And every organisation needs to welcome a challenge function. There's a time when that challenge function ends. You make a decision and until you go through another cycle. Then that's, that's the end of it. But we do need to build in a challenge function in... Um, in all that we do. Yeah. There was a, one of your fellow officers was an attached officer from the Signals, Jim Barry. What happened to Jim? Do you know what the actual tactical situation was? Well, Jim made a mistake and of course he paid for it with his life. There was uh, some white flags uh, which went up. Uh, his platoon sergeant advised him that those white flags and the people behind it should come towards him, not him expose himself to those white flags because of course he also didn't have full situational awareness and from a flank there was a group of enemy who hadn't surrendered and he was cut down in withering enemy fire. Desperate, very, very sad. What was the second uh, story you gave us? The second one was, of course, the buck stops with you if you're the head of an organisation. 
And this fast forward 19 years to when I had the privilege to be CO2 power. And in all things you do, you're subjected ultimately to potential disruptive challenges. And this disruptive challenge was the buck <coughs> stopped with me and the organisation of which I headed was taken to an employment tribunal. Oh, really? It wasn't me particularly, but of course I was the head. Yeah. And I was determined to go to the uh, employment tribunal because it was my organisation and our reputation. The Treasury solicitors wanted to offer uh, the person who was taking us to the employment tribunal 750,000k um, wow. to walk away. And I said, you cannot do this. We did not do anything wrong. Now, that's not to say that some of the troops didn't do things wrong. But again, in organisational terms and procedural terms, we didn't do anything wrong. What this really showed to me, because we won and he got no money, was the value of keeping records. Because it was the fact that we could show, again in managerial terms, that all our processes were there and mm. followed to the letter, which got us off the hook for what happened. Great. Well done. Uh, final, just in, in the last minute, top tip uh, for, for, for leaders practically to apply from, from you as an inspiring leader. Well, um, I actually reversed the paradigm in a sense because I think you learn more from when you've seen toxic leadership. And what's yeah. interesting at my stage is when people email me, it's really to do with toxic leadership, not with really good leadership you never really can articulate what good leadership is, but you absolutely can see when toxic yeah, leadership occurs. And so understanding that delta between the two is really, really important. Mm. And that's why, again, we should welcome this challenge function uh, in any organisation that we have. Brilliant. Chip, thank you very much indeed. Great having you on the series. And uh, congratulations on a very successful career and also giving good advice uh, in the news. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to Inspiring Leadership Extra and uh, Major General Chip Chapman and I just continuing our conversation. Chip, uh, interested to go into sort of life and what shaped you the man you are today. You talked about you got a, a first class honours degree. Uh, where was that? And that, you got that? Um, that was at Lancaster University. Yeah, uh, I did Lancaster. history. Yeah. You're Member great. of the elite Liverpool University OTC. Yes. Yeah. I was just up in Liverpool the other day seeing the aircraft carrier. Prince of Wales, which came in. Um, and so bef taking you back before university, um, parents, family, upbringing, what, you know, what shaped you as the leader you are today? Is there any role models there? Well, we had a solid um, parental background, very happily brought up. One brother, one sister. Uh, no one's ever been in court, so it was a solid <laughs> family with um, dysfunctional elements to it and very happy upbringing. Um, it was, I guess, a fairly working class family at the time. I don't think anyone had been to university from the, the wider family at the time. And where, was home, where was home for you? Uh, I was brought up in Plymouth, but I have yeah. to say that I was born in Cornwall because that's very important if there are any Cornish <laughs> listeners out there. Yeah. And uh, in a sense, I, was, I fell into the army by accident. So I think in 1976, I'd seen a panorama program about Sandhurst and thought that looks interesting and that was my initial motivation to join the army and indeed I was due to go to Sandhurst straight from school in 1977. Because there was nobody else in the family who had ever done that? No, um, but at the same time I'd applied for university and got pretty good A-level results and thought maybe I'm slightly cleverer than I gave myself 
credit for and uh, therefore decided to go to university and the army wrote to me to sort of say we'll sponsor you through university that was good and in fact i would have been a disaster if i'd have gone to sandhurst at 18 i was yeah. far too immature and whether i'd have stuck it out or not i yeah. don't know it would have been an interesting one to have seen i, I was, did go at 18 and i was too immature yeah. i struggled through but i think yeah. i would have been far a far better officer had i gone to university and then gone back in and i think that's important because like most things in life there is a process of maturation both in terms mm. of your leadership style and all those elements of character really because again both in war in the Falklands and in peace character to me is the sum of a number of things it's your individuality it's your behavior it's your manners all those things add up to what happens and in war or peace where there are disruptive challenges character often matters more than competence and, and you've just reminded me that uh, we had two other people on the series uh, Johnny Gray, Argyle, and uh, Johnny was J.O. in his platoon to Gary Hearn, who was the cadet sergeant. Yeah. And Gary was the rear link detachment uh, signaller as a corporal for the Welsh Guards in the Falklands, and a really good leader, but came up from private soldier to colonel. He's just finishing off at the Army Defence Academy, I think he's teaching there. But it was interesting that Johnny Gray was humble enough to say that he came as a young, uh, rather arrogant public school boy, and Gary Hearn gave him the wisdom of, of the experience of years that Gary had had being on tours around the world and being in a war like you. And I, and I think too, too many young officers going with no experience like I did and, and need that maturing process. A guy called Rod Thomas, the colonel in the signals, now just retired. But Rod was my sort of right-hand man, ex-corporal. And, and so we became good friends, and I learned that way as a young 18-year-old. But it sounds like you got it right by going to university. Yeah, and what I also learned, of course, fast forward to the Falklands, was that in leadership terms, uh, only three things really matter. Cohesion, cohesion, cohesion. And that's what I tried to foster throughout my career, that it's really Adair's team task and individual. Mm. If you get those in the right balance, then you can go anywhere. And, and I think uh, Stan McChrystal's sort of stolen that in a sense. He now calls that uh, team mission self. So it's very yes. similar. Yes, and that's what Tim Evans talked about, that mission yeah. team individual. Yeah, I think it's the same kind of thing, yeah. isn't it? But if you have a strong team and you're task-oriented, then you can achieve anything. It's all that stuff from Patton about give people the initiative, you'll be surprised with what they can achieve for you. Tell people uh, what to do, not how they'll do it. And that's what we've tried to inculcate. But, but, uh, but saying back to one of the earlier points you made, which I really enjoyed, you're talking about knowing about toxic and the delta change between toxic and good. It's all about good, talk about inspiring. But, but you must have seen both in business and in, in the military some toxic teams. When you've been in toxic teams, what, what, what went wrong? What were they doing wrong? It was absolutely either leadership or those who represented the leadership. One example was when I was serving in a military unit overseas and ultimately that unit was disbanded for acts wow. which took place. And you could see there that it wasn't a good organization Sadly, the denouement of this before they were disbanded was that a new leader, a new full colonel came in to take over the, take over the reins before they were going on a very complex uh, overseas operation. He looked at the unit and had the moral courage to go to the bosses in uh, the headquarters in this country to say, you cannot send this unit, I need to sort them out before you make them ready I for operations. I think I know who you're talking about. He was sacked. Oh, really? He was never rehabilitated, but that wow. was an example of moral courage. Wow. But sadly, 
he was not rewarded for that. So the mm. challenge function in that organization and in that army at the time did not exist to allow him to what, follow his, uh, his heart and his what head. A, what a, uh, a tragedy and also a miscarriage of justice. And, and it's interesting, um, Margaret Heffernan, who does her book, um, Willful Blindness, also did a talk on Dare to Disagree, which is really much of what you're talking about, this idea of it really is healthy for people to disagree without being disagreeable, but you, you really need that challenge. Otherwise you get the Bay of Pigs scenarios and all that kind of stuff where people rush in with really bad ideas. And the second one where I saw toxic leadership was I was working in a major government department doing a national study which was laid before Parliament uh, for a very senior minister. And um, there it was the advisors to the minister who had adopted a toxic culture. And the sad thing about that organisation was that those civil servants, very capable civil servants, competent in their own right, were unwilling to stand up and be wow. contrary to what happened because they feared for those extrinsic uh, things which may happen to them, the things to do with their career, mm. promotion, money. And throughout my career, one of the things that always stuck with me that it, the first duty of the leader and the staff is to tell the practical truth. Yeah. And one always needs that moral courage to try and do that. It may yeah. not be popular, but it should be allowed. Someone refers to telling truth to power and, and then being a truth teller. And, and kings used to have jesters who did that in the olden days and made it funny, but it was, they, were, they were pointing out that the king had no clothes. And, and then going back to early life, uh, Chip, tell us about your parents and, and how, how they influenced you, father, mother. Were they, were they role models or was it somewhere else you got it from? I think my mother was more of a role model than my father, uh, purely because my father, rather like an absent army officer or someone who's always away on operations, was absent for a lot of the time because he was uh, in the Merchant Navy and oh, right. always overseas for long tours, six months away. So it was my mother who really brought us up and inculcated us with what I think were strong values of honesty and mm. integrity and all those things which are mm. in the army leadership culture and really in the values of most organisations which should matter. So yeah. each organisation should have probably between three to five good values in their, in their culture which people can live up to. Yeah. And Anyone which has more than five should be suspicious and I see that the army has six. Yeah, right, that's a good, good challenge for them. And then uh, parents still alive or have they passed away now? No, my mother died in um, 2007. I'm sorry. Uh, no. And my father is still alive. And uh, he obviously my mother's been dead for 13 years. And he's now on wife number two, num uh, wife number three, actually. Oh, right. Number two died. So he's now on number two because he's a sociable guy who needs a team around him and the team's got to be a, a, a woman or a wife. All oh, right, so. yeah. And, and are you still close or do you just occasionally... No, 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 say? we are still close. We're still a close-knit family. Uh, but geographically, we, uh, we are separated. But of course, with modern communication devices, there's no excuse yeah. uh, for not uh, keeping in contact. And again, that's one of the things I think a leader must do. You know, you can never over-communicate. And as George Bernard Shaw used to say, the problem with communication is the illusion that has taken place. So keeping people informed, both your family and in a, an organization is a vital component of being a decent leader. Yeah, communication. It's uh, what happens at the other end rather than the fact you've transmitted how they got it. Very good point from George Bernard Shaw. And, and what about your own family? Are you on your own? Have you got a family, children? What, what's, what's your situation? 
No, I'm married, been married for 33 years. Uh, my daughter is a successful accountant in um, Edinburgh. And my son followed his father into the army and he's a captain in the Royal Tank Regiment. All right. He felt slightly burdened by trying to follow in my footsteps in regimental terms and wanted to plough his own furrow. Yeah. And I think that was probably a wise decision uh, for, yeah. for him to, to make. So he hasn't gone and done P Company or anything like that? He hasn't. No, no, very well. Okay, so uh, anything else during those early years of your life that is worth sort of sharing about how it shaped you? Well, I think there are always inspirational teachers who you remember with great fondness who uh, managed to kick you forward if you needed to do so. Not that I necessarily think I did, but again, this comes into the fact that I always enjoyed learning, wanted to learn, had a thirst for information. So in junior school, it was Miss D.V. House, who was an old spinster who'd spent years teaching in Tanganyika, as it was at the time, in mission schools. Oh, wow went to quite a religious uh, Church of England school as a, as a, a junior school. Uh, but she was quite inspirational and therefore I remember her uh, very well. And when I wrote my book, she's in the, the opening introduction because uh, I remember her with great fondness. And I think... I, talk about, let's not jump over your book. Dave Hudson, who was just with us earlier and you, you met him, he really enjoyed your book. I haven't yet read it, but I'm looking forward to it. Is there an audio version? I don't think there is. There's hardback, Kindle, and paperback. But I don't uh, think there's. Uh, any reason I there. say is that I'm a recovering dyslexic, if that's possible. So my way of learning, I probably listen to about eighty audio books a year. R really would love to. So if you ever think of doing an audio version, I will be your first to listen to it. I look forward <laughs> to it. Okay. Uh, so, and what was your book about? Tell, tell us the, the essence of your book and what's it called if people want to buy it. Well, I wrote a book called Notes from a Small Military. The clue in the title is, in a sense, it's a rip-off of Bill Bryson's Notes from a Small Island. Yes. And that was deliberate, because I never saved the world, but I thought I did some interesting things with very highly motivated and interesting soldiers. And originally I thought about calling it something like the wit and wisdom of the parachute regiment. So not all of it is supposed to be serious. A lot of it is funny stories. But because I was a general, I thought I had to write some stuff about leadership and management and strategy. So the final three chapters are more highfalutin than the um, first nine chapters, which are slightly funny, but have their own resonance in things they tell. For example, there's a chapter on discipline, which of course is about ill discipline. And within that, um, there are a number of things that, for example, I briefed troops on at various times, which they still remember to this day. So when the unit, for example, when I was CO, moved to Colchester, they weren't sure of the lie of the land, having had the freedom of Aldershot for 50 years, and they could get up to behaviours in Aldershot, which the good burghers of Colchester weren't um, familiar with, shall we say. <laughs> and before we went on the first summer leave, I'd put a number of pubs out of bands and um, got called down to see the licensed victuallers of Colchester, who briefed me about the dishonourable behaviour of my troops. And I got them all together on the square when um, when we got back, stood on a super cat so they could see me and briefed them that I um, had a special offer for the month of September and I'd applied for extended powers and anyone who was a miscreant downtown would get locked up for 60 days because one of the things they always remembered uh, which went in conjunction was that was that I always used to say there were three types of drunk, a happy drunk, a sleepy drunk, and a violent drunk. I wanted the happy drunk to bring the sleepy drunk home. And if they were a violent drunk, they were going to be locked up for 28 days. 
that was black and white in terms of discipline, which in those sort of senses you needed to have. There were no shades of grey yeah. in trying to dis give that message to uh, highly motivated, but also sometimes people you had to drag back, you certainly didn't have to push them forward. Yeah. And, and how did you manage that? That, um, you know, I remember just doing P Company when we went downtown, that it just... You know, occasionally I, I saw a, a parachute regiment soldier or even an officer trying to emulate the soldier because he thought he, he would gain popularity doing a diving, smashing the shop window of Burton's and diving and doing a para roll and thinking, yes, done that. And I thought, you know, so how do you sort of manage that? That there's, you need them to be really um, airborne initiative, get stuck into things in training and then in wartime, but then in peacetime, it, it can be a nightmare. And I think you said on the commanding officer's course, or certainly David remembered it, that you can't control what happens, you can control the actions you take afterwards to resolve and fix what has happened. But what, what's your, your experience of, of no, I think I think that's absolutely true. It's not the instance that matters, how you deal with them. And again, you know, it's the disruptive challenges where you see this. So again, when I was CO, and I'd literally just taken over about two weeks before, and we were in Canada and we were live firing and someone was shot. I was out, there was a company attack. I was out on the ground with battalion tank. Killed or just injured? Just injured, but that was bad enough, I guess. Yeah. And I was there with my um, ops officer, a very capable uh, guy who went to the SAS. And he said, we need to go down and sort this out. Battalion main, the main headquarters was on the ground and I said to him, no, I will sit back and listen to battalion main and how they sorted out and I will learn far more from that. And of course, I knew the personalities in the headquarters, even though I'd just taken over and they did a first class job and therefore I knew what I had to do or not do with a unit which was already in a very, very good state of training yeah. and highly motivated and could problem solve when it was needed. Yeah. My the conclusion of being a CO, the same thing happened when we shot someone literally a week before I handed over and the same thing pertained, stood back, watched uh, Battalion Main sorted out. And again, that proved that of the two bookends of my uh, tenure as CO of the unit, <laughs> that the unit was in fighting fettle in terms of its planning and the way the battalion headquarters worked, both at the start and the conclusion of my time. Very good. And we were talking about Peter Holiday when he was in Seven Gurkhas and the mortar rounds dropping short on one of their exercises and you were with uh, now General Cedric Delves uh, as the Chief of Staff to that brigade when he was Brigade Commander. What did you see Cedric Delves do that you admired during your time with him? Cedric Delves was a very silent but analytical uh, uh, chap who again he is one of those if I'd have had more time in the original podcast would have been in my top three. He also was a charismatic leader which is unusual for someone who is so taciturn in that sense, he sort of mirrored Wavell. He, was, he didn't say a lot. When he said something, it was very impactive. And he had a huge brain, and he was a joy to therefore learn from mm. and how he looked at problems and solved problems. And again, I think there's a lot that people could learn by reading his book, uh, Cross an Angry Sea, which was published last year about his time in D Squadron 22 SAS in the Falklands. Oh, right, that, that sounds very good. Cross an Angry Sea. Cross Cedric, an Angry Sea. By Cedric Dells, I will. I will read it. And and who else would you choose as, as people that you've had the honor of working with? Maybe they weren't above you, maybe they were below you or beside you. And well, you there are certain them. people you admire because they are those characters that you need to pull back, as I said. And there's one particular uh, corporal who was a, 
a, a, a private soldier of mine when I was a company cool. commander, Moose name? Miller. Moose Miller. And there was a particular operation we were on when I was CO in Macedonia. And we knew there were some snipers on the hill, but the, uh, the intent of the mission was to collect uh, weapons as a weapons collection mission to try and cement peace and uh, have an enduring ceasefire. We knew there were some snipers on the hill and I'd drawn on the map a no fire line. And so no one was to go forward of that line and attempt to engage the, uh, the, the snipers in case they started to play. Moose Miller, of course, wanted to know how thick the line was, whether I'd used a 2, 2B or an HB pencil, <laughs> and whether he could snuggle his way up forward of the pencil line and be in range where he could engage the enemy if needed. Wow. He got as far as actually going to what he thought was his limit of exploitation allowed by me and showed me some video through his scope of where he had them in his sight should he need to do so. Wow. But that's the joy of people that you need to sometimes pull back rather that's than amazing. push forward. Yeah. What did Moose what has Moose done in his life now, do you know? I think Moose did his twenty two years and like many of these guys he went on to the security uh, circuit and has been around the world doing all sorts of yeah. nefarious but legal things. <laughs> Yeah, because cause the, the, the airborne forces do produce some exceptional people. Um, and, and even in my short, short time of doing the, the training with them and um, getting my wings, I was very proud of being just even on the edge of it. Um, what, what do you think you've seen the, the best officers and soldiers and, and um, non-commissioned officers what, what have you seen them go and do afterwards? What range of things have they got to do? Oh, it's a, it's a whole panoply. I mean, if you look at the um, most extraordinary examples of paratroopers, you have, for example, private soldiers from uh, the Falklands in three para, who is now a billionaire. The, jo wow. the chap, for example, who um, did Trump's inauguration, who came up with the concept for survivor who came up with the concept for the apprentice What's mark, his name? mark Burnett is his name Burnett, yeah. and he got a break by going to america when he left the army going to james khan the film actor at the time and saying i should be your bodyguard uh, not your bodyguard the nanny to your children james khan laughed at him and said why should i do that because your kids are high value assets. I've just been to the Falcons. I will keep them secure. He got the job, yeah. but he was always full of ideas and initiative. He got his break within Hollywood by doing that. And then his initiative and creative mind came yeah. up with all these programs which are now syndicated around the world and he is a billionaire. So you have that in terms of private soldiers and you have um, multi-millionaires, both officers and, uh, office, uh, officers and soldiers mainly those who um, went into the security market, understood both business and providing uh, security and did very well. But it's worth saying that in war and in business, I think there are three types, and this is go, goes back again to what I really learned from my early days in the Falklands. I think in business and in, in the army, there are three types. There are thrivers, there are stickers, and there are failures. You want to try and minimize the failures by training, education or whatever. Try and get your stickers to become thrivers and keep your thrivers as being thrivers. It's not always uh, the mm. case that you can do that for various cognitive or other reasons, but that is the ideal. And that's why I've always been also very passionate about induction in units so that you work uh, smart, not busy, and that everyone understands their role and task and what they need to do in any mm. organization. Yeah. And the, 
the airborne forces, particularly parachute regiment, produced a number of senior officers, brigadiers and generals. Um, why do you think that is? What, what is it? Well, there are different demands, of course, at different levels. So direct leadership is one thing, and mm. being a good CO or at that level does not mean that you'll be uh, necessarily a good executive commander, divisional level or above, and that may be different than being a strategic commander when you're doing or helping decision-making of ministers in, uh, in Whitehall, for example. And um, they demand different qualities, um, both in terms uh, of character and competence, mm. as I've said. Now, most people are competent and you get promoted generally to do with your competence. Uh, you don't necessarily get promoted for your moral courage or any of those other things. And if there's one weakness in lots of people who go into strategic leadership in the MOD, for example, it is our job, as it should be for people in business, um, to tell the practical truth, as I said earlier on. It is not our job to give advice which is tinted uh, with um, a political flavour. Uh, we give military advice, or should, should give military advice, it is for the politicians to either take or ignore that military advice. It is not for them to change that military advice. So I'd like to see a more a greater purity in strategic decision making and moral mm. courage from what should be our job in our strategic leaders uh, in defence these days. Yeah, and and let's come on to in the final stages of our of our talk about you're in a very privileged position of giving advice and um, your opinion on cyber and Russia and a whole variety of things. Uh, in, in a little nutshell, I, I'm always interested in these kind of things. So, so firstly, what, what's your prediction? I mean, we're here, here we are in March of 2020. What's, what's going to happen about the coronavirus and, and what's going to be the impact, the fear factor and how it'll impact on the economy and you know, business and what people do and events they have? What, what do you predict will happen? Well, the first thing to say, uh, as Yogi Berra, the um, baseball player in America, once said, uh, prediction is difficult, particularly about the future. <laughs> giving opinions without data is a mindless occupation. So you have to look at the parameters that you know about the known knowns at the moment and how things might go. So we know, for example, that in the National Risk Register, which is another aspect that I used to deal with in, that we've had a pandemic influenza as a high risk, high likelihood for the last 18, 19 years. This really follows on from those disruptive challenges in the late 90s and early noughties, the four Fs, foot and mouth, floods, fuel and fire. Mm. So we've known it's been there and the Civil Contingencies Secretariat, part of the Cabinet Office, has therefore had mitigations for a significant number of years and that cascades through the resi resilience architecture in the UK. The thing which is novel about uh, coronavirus, because we have had lots of viruses in the last 10 years, MERS, SARS, Zico, is that you don't really know the, um, the intensity of it, you don't know uh, the sustainability of it, you don't know the spread of it, and all those at the moment until you get the scientific data, and there's a very, very good advisory group to ministers the first one is called the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, and the second one is called the New Emergencies Respiratory Virus uh, Threat Action Group. They give advice rather like the military should in a strategic context. Once they have greater data, 
to draw on, yeah. then you can come up with uh, solutions. Mm. But there are nine sectors within the economy which lead to um, uh, the national infrastructure, uh, critical national infrastructure. And all those sectors are likely to be affected if the curve of coronavirus goes on a linear uh, upward curve. All those are also sectors, of course, which, um, which defence can get involved in. But any company in the modern age should have business continuity plans mm -hmm. to deal with these uh, things which are likely to disrupt their industries. And this could be the, the food sector, it could be the fuel sector, it could be the transport sector, it could be the emergency services, it could be health. So mm -hmm. the need to be business plans in all of those to mitigate the effects of what may happen. That is crucial in any business and is one of the gaps we see really, particularly in the modern age with cyber, where both um, the C-suite officers in a organization and the board are not necessarily cognizant of cyber risks. And therefore, when something happens and it's bound to in the cyber field, are not best placed because they've not trained for it in the way that you mil the military would, for example, in a crisis situation. Mm -hmm. And a crisis is not the time to exchange business cards. Very good way. So Chip, as we come to the end, what, what would you leave us with um, with your final top tip uh, to uh, leaders and teams to, 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 to turn these toxic teams around and be better leaders? What would, you, what would be your final advice? Well, the first one is no one was ever managed up a hill. They were led there. So you need good management, but excellent leadership is the thing which gives you the vision to carry forward. Mm -hmm. A leader gives vision, a follower needs vision. That's a, no, no, this is very good. Keep going. Yeah. A leader needs vision, a follower gives vision. A follower needs direction, a leader gives direction. A leader needs information, a follower should get in, in, information. So it's a two-way street yeah. between the leader and the follower which should make a cohesive team. Fantastic. Chip, thank you very much indeed. Really enjoyed your insights, your stories, your experience, and I look forward to following you on various different uh, media, social media, and the advice and experience you share. But thank you. You're welcome. So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.